enjoying a good satisfying poo. I don't know about you, but like there's, uh, I used to talk about this thing called pooforia where you, um, <laughs> where you do a good poo and you feel amazing and, you know, you're like, right, okay, I've just evacuated well. And um, some say that it does sort of stimulate that vagus nerve as well. Um, and, and so I think that, yes, ensuring that you overall, if you're looking after your health and you, you consider that an investment in yourself, because sometimes it does take time. It's not a quick fix. That for me is self-love. Welcome to the Self-Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self-Love Podcast. This week, I'm really excited to introduce to you a beautiful soul, Linda Griperick. She's a naturopath, a nutritionist, a podcaster, a writer, a yoga teacher. She's a mom. She has over 20 years of experience in the health industry and specializes mainly in digestive health, SIBO and constipation. So this week we are talking poo. So I'm telling you, you're going to love this conversation because this woman has extensive experience in running healthy, effective and sustainable bowel care programs. She has expertise in investigating and treating the underlying causes of gut disturbance, dysbiosis. Linda also has an interest in poo and is the creator of the delicious Better Me Tea, which is a tea designed to promote and improve gut health and digestion digestion, assisting those who struggle with constipation and sluggish bowel movements to go to the bathroom with ease. You know, it's a conversation that I think needs more um, lightheartedness, giggles, as she says, and a more open discussion around what is healthy number twos. We talk health, we talk wellness and her love of medicine and nutrition, particularly from a naturopathic angle, and also uh, what she believes is some of the key factors and what we can do to have better gut health and better microbiome, et cetera. So if this is something that's fascinated you, you're going to love the way she talks about it. And the other beautiful, interesting thing about our beautiful Linda is she is also married to the gorgeous Guy Lawrence, someone who I've also had on the show and is a very big wellness expert and meditation expert. And I think you're just going to love how we dive deep into going into the poo, the poo of life. So I hope you enjoy it. Please make sure you leave your comments and feedback on my Instagram page, Kim Morrison 28, Facebook, Kim Morrison Training, or you can go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. Really loving bringing all these incredible souls into your world. And thank you with hand on heart for being a part of the self-love podcast. Take care now. So it was without absolute doubt and huge pleasure that I invite the beautiful Linda Graparic or Graparic. We've been debating on how to say her beautiful last name, but it deserves proper pronunciation. She is a beautiful soul, the host of Love and Guts podcast and the most exquisite being when it comes to health and wellness. And particularly, I'm really excited today because we're going to be talking all things gut. Welcome to the self-love podcast, beautiful Linda. Thank you very much for having me. And in in all you know, timely manner, we've got the recycling truck just going by now. So please excuse. The <laughs> it's always noise. the way. It's always the way. And that's what I love about podcasts. They're raw, they're real, and they are so absolutely us in the present moment. You're also a beautiful mum and wife. But for people who may not have heard of you, give us a brief background as to who you are and how you got into doing the incredible work that you do. Well, yeah, Kim, I'm a bit rusty, I have to say, because it's been probably a good year since I've actually done any sort of podcast interview. I made a decision uh, this year to sort of park everything. So I just started uni studies again. So let's see how this um, uh, this brief explanation of myself will go. Um, but yes, I'm a new mama. So my bubba is about 17 months old, Ava. And I'm a naturopath and nutritionist. I also have the podcast Love and Guts that you've been on episode 223 you guys go check it out and I have a I'm also the the founder of better me tea so it's a tea that I designed to help promote improved gut health and and uh, improved digestion improving uh, helping those that really struggle with sluggish bowel movements and constipation to go to the bathroom with these 
and I'm a student as well. So I've gone back to studies at uni and um, so I lead a very full life like many of us do and I enjoy it. <laughs> well, and what are you studying just by out of interest? Well, I'm doing a Bachelor of Complementary Medicine. Um, so back in the day when I studied naturopathy, it was the late 90s and it was only a diploma that was offered. And so it was always, it's always been a bit of a bucket list thing for me to go back and do the degree of naturopathy. So when I graduated in 2002, they just started to bring in the, the university course for naturopathy and nutrition and by that time, I'd been studying for five years and I just wanted to start working, you know. And so now it's like, and I'd been grandfathered into being able to practice because I'd done it so long ago. And so, yeah, so now it's just me going back and it's a perfect time to do it really because a lot of what we're studying in this course is looking at how to really dissect evidence and, you know, so just really sharpening my saw in that area and it's not something that we really were taught back in the day when I was studying in the late 90s so yeah I've, I've just loved challenging my brain in that way and the content itself and the lectures have just been absolutely awesome. Yeah it's a beautiful topic too right and in the last five to ten years certainly the information and knowledge and research around gut health has almost like exploded for want of a mm. better word Tell us how it's differed for you then from back in the 90s to now. What are some of the most significant changes or openings that you've seen around knowledge as around our health and wellness? Good question. I think when it, when it relates to, to gut health, there's just been a massive surge in the, how the gut impacts so many different areas in our lives and including, you know, the gut and brain access and the different accesses that the gut sort of pertains to and the bi-directional relationship that it has with these things. And so I think that that's been something that's just, I guess, had a bit of a limelight and had, had its moment and, and is forever evolving for us, that sort of relationship that we have with really supporting our gut microbiome and that environment and how that impacts things like mood and how that impacts you know, the thyroid function and, and hormonal health overall, I think that's probably been one of the significant things that I've noticed over time just increasingly grow. But also now I'm even seeing like probably over the last year or so the, the impact that the oral microbiome and the oral cavity and the oral health has on things like the reproductive health and, and digestive health. And that's absolutely fascinating and even mental health. And that's not something that you know, we, we sort of, that was addressed back then when I was studying and it, it's only something that's sort of come to light over the last couple of years. So the area that I work in is constantly evolving. And so I, I find that it's not a profession that I could ever really get bored with. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's just, it, you really feel like you need to sharpen your saw every single year just to keep abreast of the new information that's sort of spat out so frequently. Can you explain to us then, someone that is interested in studying nutrition, understanding the philosophy around, you know, food, eating, our microbiome and all of that, how does naturopathy, the focus of naturopathy vary as opposed to someone who would specialise in dietetics, for example? Uh, good question. Look, I don't know the curriculum for someone that would study dietetics, so I don't know that I can really do a solid comparison on both but what would be a standout difference would be that as a naturopath we would be looking at supporting health uh, one of the treatment strategies may be using herbal medicine and that is not something that would be addressed uh, if you were doing dietetics for example so nutrition would be something that a dietitian would address as does a naturopath because a big component a massive component of what we do as in our naturopathic studies is nutrition I don't actually know what the information that they're delivering as dietitians versus what we do. So I feel like this question is a little bit hard to answer, Kim. I really, I really don't want to like poo-poo any profession or say that one is better than the other because I don't actually know uh, what their studies are, what their curriculum is or what, their, what their, the values are as a dietitian versus a naturopath. And I guess I can only really speak to what we do and that's sort of looking at someone's um, 
uh, taking a full case history, and that can be anywhere up to an hour to 90 minutes, when you see someone for the first time, really getting an understanding of their health history, uh, any sort of um, perpetuating or mediating factors that might be contributing to their ailment, uh, looking at lifestyle, looking at dietary behaviour, looking at mental health and addressing those with either, you know, definitely nutrition, but also looking at lifestyle, you know, um, how they bring joy into their life. You know, are they, are they, what's their social uh, network like? Do they, do they have one? Uh, do they move their body? Are they getting exposure to sunlight? All of these sorts of things we address. Well, most of us do. Uh, rarely do we just look at nutrition or do we just look at giving someone a supplement, for example. You know, we're looking at the holistic picture of someone and how we can address some of the drivers that are contributing to their symptoms that they're experiencing you know, rather than just addressing the symptom itself. Say, for example, someone comes to you with fatigue as something that's just been plaguing them for many years. There could be so many driving reasons for that person having fatigue. So really doing the detective work to figure out what that is. But while we're doing that, really trying to improve their fatigue acutely, like straight away, because you want people to come back and you want them to start feeling better like pronto, you know, but whilst they're starting to feel better straight away, we're looking at, okay, why does this exist? Looking at that chronic underlying problem and addressing that, that chronic issue rather than all that, that sort of underlying driver versus just doing that symptomatic top level, if that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. I just totally go off on a tangent. No, 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 that was perfect. I'm curious, you know, GPs and times gone by, and again, this is not knocking anything um, or any profession I so appreciate and validate all professions, but just, just help me understand this. As a person who's fascinated by nutrition, interested in nutrition, and has an appreciation that whatever we put into our bodies has an effect, every single thing we put into and onto our bodies has an effect at some cellular level. Understanding that and realizing that what we put in is so profound on the input versus the output, why is it then nutrition is not seen as one of the most important foundation structures of knowledge for a GP, knowing that food is our greatest medicine? I, I'm just curious. Apparently, and I may be wrong, their study of nutrition is approximately 10 hours over five, six or seven years. And I'm just fascinated as to how nutrition is not seen as one of the most important parts of everyday health and wellness. Mm, it blows my mind too, Kim. It really does. It, it, and I don't know the amount of hours that they do on nutrition, but I do know that it is minimum. And look, time is a factor for them, I'd imagine. Um, I don't know why it's not a, a bigger component of, of their studies. I think, you know, trying to get to the bottom of someone's mediating factors or drivers to their ailment is very, very, very difficult in five to 10 to 15 minutes that a, you know, a conventional or, you know, a general GP would have with you versus someone that is actually taking a longer case history. So can you address nutrition in that short period of time? Can you even ask what a person, how, what, what a person's typical daily diet is like? Like you'd be hard pressed to really do anything other than look at what are your symptoms, you know, getting a really brief case history and then providing a prescription of some sort. Uh, what would be really beneficial is if, yes, there's a gap there with them, their lack of knowledge, but also, you know, and maybe their confidence in addressing diet, but maybe looking at having a nutrition nutritionist in that sort of multidisciplinary clinic, you know, just to really dissect that for the patient so a GP could possibly go okay well look you know diet's really important when it comes to something like diabetes so maybe you can look at seeing the nutritionist or the dietitian that, that's also within this clinic I think you know so yes they would probably recognize that it's a there's a gap there and hopefully imagine that that many of them would understand that diet's important um but yeah, and to refer on, but it's, it is a difficult one because I do, it's not addressed a lot of the times 
And it can be alarming to just be giving someone, say, a high blood pressure tablet or, uh, you know, diabetes medication and, and those sorts of things without looking at the impact diet does have on all of these things. You know, I think it's, it's, there's such a gap there. It's, yeah, I don't know what more to say about that, but it's, mm. I don't know why it's not addressed more in, in their studies. And I, yeah, it's, I'm not sure what factors contribute to that, to be honest. Well, I'm sure they have a lot on their plate and what they have to learn and being a general practitioner of all things, it must be hugely challenging. And I've always admired doctors that go, you know what, just a minute, I'm just going to look that up because I think how on earth can they possibly retain all of that information? Yes. Do you think then from a naturopath point of view, because you prescribe herbs, they may prescribe medications. Is it the same philosophy, just one with herbs, one with medications, pharmaceuticals, or do you believe they're very completely different? And why were you drawn to naturopathy as opposed to medicine? Yeah, good question. Why was I drawn to naturopathy instead of medicine? You know what? (laughs) I'm drawn to medicine now, but I would probably do it very different. And if I had my time over, maybe I would do them both, (laughs) you know, if I had the brain space. I was drawn to naturopathy because of the fact that we do encompass most things in someone's life, you know, their their exposures, most of their exposures rather than just addressing that acute presentation, that that symptom that we want to just, uh, just resolve, you know. I think humans are complex and you know, looking at just the symptom is not good enough. It's, it's short-lived. I think looking at what is driving our ailments is much more appealing to me because it's, they're, they're, they provide long-standing results. And I even think, you know, as a naturopath, many of us would be asking eventually when we get to know the patient, you know, has there been any past trauma? You know, because that impacts, uh, I believe, symptom presentation in the body. And so I think that for me has been a major appeal with why I've chosen, I guess, naturopathy in this way of being because it has more of that holistic picture. We're addressing things with those, I guess, supplements and food and movements of those things that don't necessarily have a lot of uh, harmful impact on the body or consequences from taking or doing. Not to say that herbs don't have any sort of um, harmful impact because there's certain herbs that you wouldn't want to be taking long term. And so I think that, you know, whilst they're generally pretty safe, they're not always going to be safe for everyone. So, you know, it does come with some sort of those consequences. Some of them do anyway. So I think but it is much more of a natural approach. Uh, a much more of a do less harm approach um, and we're encompassing improving someone's quality of life rather than just reducing the acute presentation and I think that that has its place absolutely I think you know sometimes we do need that sort of conventional medicine approach straight away you know Um, emergency medicine emergency medicine absolutely uh, and when it comes to pain, sometimes if we can't address it naturally, you might need to take medication for a short period of time and then we just sort of counteract and, and support the body so to reduce the side effects or the long-term use of these sorts of things. And so I think that, you know, it does sort of have its place. But for me personally, I'm much more interested in how, can, how I can improve the quality of someone's life long-term and and. I don't even know if that's the right wording. It's more empowering them to make these changes so that they just need to maintain their health, but their quality of life has improved and their their joy for life has improved as well. So, yeah, again, long-winded, but that that appeals to me much more than just the acute. And, yeah, it's funny because I'm a yoga teacher as well, or I used to teach, and I was never really great at teaching vinyasa, like the sort of faster flow. But when it came to yin yoga, that was my thing. I couldn't sort of keep up with like the um, delivering that sort of uh, the instruction for vinyasa and I kind of felt it hurried and, and busy. I love to do it personally as a student, but to teach it was just not my thing. But to do yin yoga, 
to teach that, I loved it because I gave people space. I'd give them five postures within the entire class and I would speak to something, you know, it would be uh, a topic that I might address, I don't know, on, on transformation or, or, or on just, just to sort of plant a few seeds in someone's way of thinking. And I love that versus the teaching of the vinyasa. I think, so I think that that's just kind of, yeah, my mentality and the just, you know, value of mine maybe. And personality, right? You know, that's exactly right. We're drawn to it. It's just always fascinated me. Not that I'm into cars or racing or anything particularly, but you know, you watch a Formula Grand Prix race and they talk about the fuel that goes into that car. You would not be putting, you know, everyday petrol, I would imagine, into a Formula One race car. You mm. also, you know, wouldn't be putting uh, necessarily not great food into a horse that you, I guess, that you own if, if racing is your thing. So, yeah, I've always looked and being married to an international sportsman for where he was at the top of his game for 10 years, that was where my passion really grew. And then it grew even more as a mum being pregnant, understanding yes. that what I was doing was growing a human. And I became even more fascinated by how the body actually does require. But I do have one question around that, um, you know, when you're pregnant, and I don't know if you're able to answer this, but if nutrition is so important and it really is a big part of growing a little human, why is it that a number of women get so sick and cannot keep food down? What is, do you understand what's happening biologically, physiologically, maybe even biochemically? Why is it some women struggle to keep food down, yet food is such an important part of growing a baby? That I've never come to understand. Mm, good question. And I don't think I'm going to do this justice, to be honest, because it isn't my area of expertise when it comes to fertility or pregnancy I actually had a naturopath to, who specializes in this area to support me but it is fascinating and the body is intelligent so sometimes you do have to wonder is there a reason for it but even for for um, my senior gravis I can never say that that uh that word correctly no it's hype hg I can never get, get the word correctly but when that when that condition that uh results in the the person or the pregnant woman being horrendously sick for almost the entire pregnancy to the point that it's debilitating and they can't get out of bed you do have to wonder like does this serve a purpose of any sort because it doesn't kind of make sense in the slightest um yeah no I don't think I can answer that Kim I don't really know that uh, I, I can answer that but I think that that for me personally because of the fact that some women may experience because it doesn't happen for everyone I certainly was able to, to eat yes I felt nauseous here and there and but for the most part I could keep things down and you know my appetite sort of didn't appetite didn't sort of change way too much but I feel as though you need to be entering into pregnancy with optimum levels of nutrients and I mean that's the not you don't need to but that's the ideal way I think to enter into pregnancy it's not always the case because sometimes we unexpectedly fall pregnant and we may not be at that sort of the, that in the best optimal state of health for ourselves and so I think you know in those scenarios where you're entering into pregnancy and you've got optimum levels of nutrition and, and you know your baby baby's then able to take from you what it needs i mean when i was pregnant i um my iron levels and this is not uncommon were chronically low and they've never been a massive issue for me as being low but no matter what i did to bump up those levels it just wasn't increasing so we would do you know cycling of iron and various other things just to improve my iron levels and the baby was just taking absolutely what it needed and so i just kind of resigned to the fact of you know baby knows what it needs it takes it, whatever it might be, um, and I was able to still function normally, didn't feel any, you know, um, ridiculous tiredness other than just the usual here and there of feeling heavy at certain points of the pregnancy. So They just yeah. take from us, don't they? They, they do just, just take. <laughs> we're just this vehicle for their joy, their, their growth, yeah. their ability, but we really do just become a vessel at that point, aren't we? Totally. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning that because I feel as though even though maybe we aren't able to keep food down or we may not be eating the most amazing things, which I hope that, you know, we're doing our best to eat 
well during pregnancy, but it's not always the case. Sometimes it's just a case of keeping your food down and having really bland stuff and whatever it might be. Uh, I do trust that the baby sort of gets what it needs from the stores that we already have. So if we can just enter into that sort of pregnancy as healthy as we can be. And for those of us that have tried for a long time to fall pregnant, for me, I mean, it took us three years, You, it, it becomes a bit of a project. And so you do kind of just try to get to that point of, okay, well, what else, how else can I improve my health to just welcome in this baby? And so, you know, I'm hoping that with that when we entered into the pregnancy, we I was at the best my optimal health at that point in time wasn't perfect, but it was good enough, I guess. Mm. But yeah, as what happens mechanically or, you know, physiologically during pregnancy and why, you know, the, the nausea and the can't keep the food down and the baby still thrives in that. I don't know that I can give you the best, uh, description on that we are amazing I mean the body is incredible and as you said before we're so biodynamically different we all have different um, things that work well for us one of the things that has really come to the fore lately and I'd love to understand what you think of this is there does seem to be a huge increase and I might be wrong in gut health issues autoimmune disease fertility mental health do you have any insights or thoughts around what's happening, what is creating all these problems, or is it just that we've never talked about them before and they've always been there? Probably a bit of a combination of both, but I do feel as though the um, there is definitely an increase of seeing that in clinic. And when it comes to, and there's probably so many factors that drive this, and some of them I'm thinking, if, you know, the exposures that we have uh, the world in which we live in, the amount of stress that can impact us that that then can drive gut disruption. You know, when you think of stress in itself, outside of you know, making us feel anxious or causing us to feel mentally a bit unwell, for want of a better way of saying that, stress can directly impact the gut lining and integrity. And so really disturb things like the the gut gut health, gut microbiome health. And so, and again, the flow on effect from that can be an impact to the immune system and an impact to brain health, hormonal health, all of those sorts of things. And so I think, you know, possibly our, our stress levels, our demands have increased. And not only that, the, the other stresses in our life. So, you know, the impact of our environment being possibly a little bit more toxic. And so that's another stress. And so the possibly also the nutritional deficiencies that we might be encountering more and more from artificial soils, for example. So that's another stress. Um, yeah, so I mean, and so I think that there's a few drivers to why we might seeing, be seeing a bit more of, of those things as a surgeons. You know, definitely the exposures that we have and definitely the, the levels of stress that is going on in our worlds on so many different levels can be two of the big factors, you know, there. Mm. Mm. Can you explain to us then leaky gut? So what happens and what causes this leaky gut thing and how does that affect the microbiome and the lining of the gut wall and why is it so prolific? Good question. There's a few reasons that leaky gut can occur. I think, you know, when we think about leaky gut, we're talking about the intestinal permeability. So basically when those um, your intestinal cell walls become leaky and so particles pass through the intestinal cell, cell walls so and they pass into the bloodstream, they cause an inflammatory process and from that, you know, systemic inflammation can result, for example, and systemic inflammation can result in, in many things, including, including um, underpinning things like depression. Systemic inflammation can really underpin those things. So things that sort of contribute to leaky gut, as I mentioned, stress can have a huge impact on the gut lining and integrity, so therefore influencing that sort of gut permeability response. Uh, also things like uh, would you believe certain foods, like even a high amount of saturated fats can impact the gut lining integrity and not to say that saturated fats are bad because they're amazing we love our saturated fats when i'm talking about that i'm talking about things like butters and coconut oils and um, those sorts of things are saturated 
fats as well as, uh, you know, possibly even um, when we think like coconut creams and those sorts of products. So we want those in our diet, but we don't, I know, don't know about you, Kim, but, you know, not too long ago, lots of us went probably a little bit too hard on things like coconut oil and coconut oil to cook everything and, and whatnot and, and a large amount of saturated fats. But actually having way too much saturated fats in the diet can really impact the gut lining and integrity uh, and can cause this leaky gut and can cause a release of things like uh, lipopolysaccharides, which can lead to that systemic inflammation that I just spoke about before. So diet absolutely can influence um, gut permeability. Also things like intestinal dysbiosis. So if there is sort of any kind of um, imbalance between your commensal bacteria, like your good bacteria, as well as, you know, an increase of those sort of pathogenic bacteria can really disturb the gut lining and integrity. There are a few other factors. What else can I think of that could possibly affect gut permeability? Would things like, um, I guess, the types of food that you're eating, you've mentioned fat, but I guess yes. things like processed foods or oh, absolutely. for some people it's gluten or for others it's, it's allergenic, you know, allergenic type foods. Is that part of that too? Gluten is a massive one, so thank you for bringing that up. So gluten is huge and we, and we know that that can be a big issue for things like gut permeability because it improves, it um, re- responds or releases or that sort of zonulin picture that relates to leaky gut. So gluten can be an issue for, for some, not all. Uh, also, yes, as the other things you mentioned, so alcohol can also be an issue as well when it comes to gut lining and integrity. Um, constipation too. So constipation can lead to very, it's an area that I specialise in and also that I'm really passionate about. But if someone has a constipated picture going on, there can be all sorts of things going on. So there can be, uh, you know, disturbance to gut lining and integrity. There can be dysbiosis that can occur. There can be things like diverticulitis, so bowel pockets that can occur that can contribute to things like um, permeability in the gut lining. So there are some other reasons, absolutely. But processed foods, I mean, processed foods can just... Our body does not respond well to processed foods overall. So refined carbohydrates, packaged processed foods is what we're sort of talking about when we talk about that, um, sort of man-made products. It's scary because so many foods, and particularly a lot of them children's foods, you know, it's only because I've been so passionate and interested in this field. But for a lot of people, they they may not even be consciously aware that these foods could be causing problems. Breakfast cereals, mm. um, muesli bars, the amount of sugar also that we're consuming in this day and age. Am I correct in saying that it's beyond um, what would be considered, you know, reasonable in this day and age when it comes to even sugar? As in our consumption of processed foods overall? I think, and not realising just how much sugar is in these processed foods, let alone everyday foods. I was staggered at how oh. much sugar is in like tomato sauce or, yes. um, you know, a muesli bar or like, you know, these things that we're marketing Coconut to. yogurt, mate. Yes. Coconut yogurt. <laughs> yes. All People get things. excited because I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm consuming <laughs> coconut yogurt. It feels really healthy to me. And I'm oh, actually, some are great. Some are really great if you get some really nice, organic, fermented, like beautiful coconut yogurts out there, but a lot of it is sweetened with something and it has a high amount of sugar in it. So you really want to be checking those labels. And, and that, again, is, is one of those things that people would just not even question, you know. And so I think, yes, there is a lot of, I guess, what's the word for it, just sort of not unspoken, but those sort of those sort of that pass through the radar of, uh, of having high content of sugar that could create an issue, like muesli bars, like you mentioned. Mm. You know, I remember growing up on muesli bars and thinking they they were the healthiest things on earth, and then they're often just so jam packed full of sugar. Unless you make your own, you know, you can make some really great muesli bars yourself uh, that will not have that massive amount of sugar in there. Process sugar. Clever, a clever marketing too, isn't it? Like I remember one day I was at, I, I don't know why I was at the supermarket. I don't go very often, but I was at the supermarket and I was getting some chips because it was, I think it might've been a party or something. And so my thing was always go for anything unflavored. So just salt, plain salt. I understand that chips aren't the best thing for us, but every now and again, I was like, you know, it doesn't hurt. 
So anyway, I'm looking at it and it's got on the front of it, no added MSG. And I thought, no added. What does Mm. added mean? And so I looked on the back and it did have 621 as an ingredient, but it says on the front, no added MSG. Now, at first glance, I thought, wow, it's a flavoured chip with no MSG. But it was the word added that made me realise it. And then what I learnt, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, if a company gets an ingredient that already has something like MSG in it, they don't have to disclose that on the label because they personally haven't put it in. And I remember ringing the chip company, gosh, this was years ago, but they said, oh, no, 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 we don't add any MSG to us. But as you'll see in the ingredients, there is small trace amounts. I was like, wow, wow, that's tricking. Yeah, you just got to be careful, don't you? But And, you know, why is it containing MSG in the first place? I mean, you you clocked on to added MSG, but many of us wouldn't. Many of us would go, oh, it's fantastic. It means that it's, you know, I, I can be sure that this doesn't have MSG, but then actually it does. It just doesn't have any excess MSG. They haven't added anything to it. And yet we know it to be an obesogen, a neurotoxin, yeah. endocrine disruptor, like I'm amazed these foods have or accept, but I've always been told, oh, it's trace amounts, small amounts, it's not harmful. But what about, is there such a thing as the accumulation effect? Is there such a thing as our body, does our body know what the heck to do with some of these chemicals? Mm, As we mentioned before, our body's pretty intelligent. So I think, you know, trace amounts of these things, we can't live a perfect life, like we can't have a completely low tox, I mean, completely no tox environment that's why you know low-tox skincare low-tox cleaning products are the way to go because absolutely no tox doesn't just doesn't feel realistic and I think that that happens also with our diet you know can we have it absolutely perfect probably not if you if you're like me you do like to eat out once and once or twice a week and do we know what they're cooking it with do we know what sort of uh, quality ingredients are they using quality ingredients you know is it is it uh, heavily sprayed ingredients for example just conventional fruits and veg so I think um now I've totally forgotten your question Ken <laughs> oh, no, Total you, you totally went there it's just the body knowing what to do with this chemical load oh, that totally. seem to be around and, and, yes. and subject to yeah so I think that yes we do we do have the processes within our body to support our detox pathways but I think when it comes to so yes to a degree I think we know what to do with these things but I I think that there's when you can't recognize what's on the label you know that saying that your body doesn't sort of recognize it as well so it can be confusing to the body as well and I think that you know the odd here and there that you are exposed to would not create big issues. But if you were exposed to processed packaged foods absolutely every day, that would be alarming to me. I mean, what's it doing to to your genetic profile? Um, You know, what is it doing to your mental health? Uh, You know, does our body know how to process that level of foreign antigen? You know, for want of a better way of saying that, probably not. Um, I think that these sorts of foods can be really damaging on on our genetic expression as well as, you know, our gut microbiome and therefore all aspects of health. So, and even when you think about, you know, as I mentioned, the oral microbiome and, and, you know, these sorts of foods, sugary processed foods on the oral microbiome health uh, and oral cavity health, the, the impact that that has is alarming. And we know that the the oral health can impact mental health as well as as digestive health and reproductive health. And so the flow-on effect of these types of foods uh, is concerning to me. I don't really think that, you know, I think to a a degree our body's intelligent. Yes, it has its detox pathways and its elimination processes. But, you know, if we have an excess of these things, I don't think that we're doing ourselves a favour uh, in supporting or working in harmony with these processes in our body. I, I do. I love what you're saying about the body's intelligence, our innate ability to process things. We're not sitting here thinking about our bodies digesting breakfast maybe this morning or how we've absorbed environmental factors. If you were out in some sort of more 
polluted environment for now. But I do believe the body has an incredible, remarkable ability to heal, to be at homeostasis, to understand. But one of the areas that you are very good at, and you've mentioned it briefly, is around um, bowel care. And yet this is something, <laughs> I love to go here, not many people talk poo. Um, yes. But when I was, I was on the medical team for ultramarathon runners running the Sydney to Melbourne race, and this is where I first got introduced to poo. So one of my jobs was to notice the athlete that was running down the highway whenever they passed number twos. This is probably going to sound so gross to some people. Oh, no, please. Um, we love yeah. this kind of inside information. <laughs> but one of my jobs was to take a photo, analyse it, um, understand the, the actual feces. Yes, so they oh, poo wow. on the they poo on the side of the road, and I had to look at it and take a photo and get to go back to the the medical practitioner. And one of them was a naturopath on our team at that point as well, which I love. And she could tell this person how they were going to run the next fifty hundred k's based on that poo. And I I don't know enough about it. I didn't understand it back then enough. But she was fascinated if if for instance if it was more dysentery or if they were constipated or if there was a more a firmer stool and etc. Could you explain to us then what is a good poo? And and is it something that we should be more aware of looking at our babies, our children, ourselves? It seems to be a very good marker for how our bodies are doing. Am I oh, correct yeah. in saying that? Absolutely. And the interesting thing is that if you have a child, if you've had a baby, you're constantly looking at the poop, especially when they're really little, just to, A, you'd be going, well, why haven't they pooped for a day or two? What's going on? What's happening with their diet? You know, blah, blah, blah. If they've got an explosive poo versus something that's really solid, if it's dark versus something that's medium brown, all of these things we tend to check as parents, but we don't necessarily do it as adults. Our poop is so insightful. You know, and and even down to how you're actually evacuate, evacuating. Is it a strain? Is it something that you that takes you 20 minutes to do and you're on your phone or you're reading something, reading some paraphernalia while you're actually on the toilet? That's not something I would encourage. I think when you need to go, it generally should slide out pretty easily without any sort of debris left on your bum. So no sticky sort of debris left on your bum. Um, and, it, and generally well-formed, like an S-shaped sort of thing. Uh, you don't want to be straining too hard or causing any anal fissures or localised bleeding or anything like that. If it's explosive or really runny, then that might indicate that there's a bit of dysbiosis going on or something your body's trying to get rid of something that it doesn't agree with. If you're not going regularly and when I'm talking about what's regular generally differs for everyone but generally you want to be going once a day at least and it's complete you feel like you don't need to go anymore often people will come and say well come to see me and they'll say well I go every day but it just feels like it's a pebble poo and and doesn't I feel like there's more to go like it just feels really incomplete and that's constipation as well. So you want to make sure you're evacuating completely. You're, it's, it slides out easily. There's no strain, uh, no, definitely no passing of blood, uh, and that you're going daily. Now, um, so, yes, your poo can be very, very insightful. Like I mentioned, if you're not going and you're going maybe once a week or twice a week or even three times a week, that's still constipation. You really want to be addressing why that is. You know, is it is it as simple as your diet? Is it as simple as the, the water intake? Uh, is it movement that, it, that your body's not getting? Are you living a bit of a sedentary lifestyle or is it something a little bit deeper? You know, medication that you're taking, for example, um, you know, is, is there, you know, could there, could there be a bacterial overgrowth like SIBO? presenting which can present as either constipation or diarrhea in some you know there could be various drivers to constipation but it it does give us insight as to the human plumbing like how you're eliminating and what's going on inside so i think that definitely worthwhile checking your stools you don't have to religiously do it every day but you just want to be looking behind and going, yeah, right, okay, that looks a bit explosive uh, or that felt really tough or I didn't even go today. What was that about? You know, what do I need to check? Or if it's if it's a one-off, for example, if you're travelling, people often tend to, uh, not always, but 
often people, either their diet changes, they're not drinking enough water, time zone change. There could be various reasons why someone gets constipated when they're traveling. Um, so if it's just, say, a one-off, you may not think of it as too much of a big issue. But if it is something that you've been experiencing for a long time, and it's a huge issue for a lot of people, people have been experiencing chronic, chronic constipation for sometimes over 20 plus years and haven't done anything about it because I think a lot of people don't know that um, it's really important to be moving the bowels every day. I mean, I remember my father saying to me, oh, back in the day, you know, the doctor says to me, if you go three days a week, then that's fine. And I'm like, well, but how do you feel with only going three days a week? Generally, when people come to me and they, they, they've only gone three days a week, they're not feeling pretty good. They're feeling bloated or they're feeling a little bit toxic or heavy or a bit of brain fog or, you know, fatigue. It's, it's you know, I, there's, there's a bit of a disconnection when it comes to the human plumbing or mixed messages about its importance. And I think that that's, that's why I'm really passionate or have been for many years about making it a less taboo topic and getting us to talk about it and have a giggle about it and address it if there's an issue rather than just ignore it because you're not alone. A lot of people do experience issues with bowel movements and there's something that can be done about it. Often it's um, something quite easy. It can be quite an easy fix when it comes to the foundational principles of helping you move your bowels, but sometimes it can be a bit more um, involved and it might take a little bit more investigation than long-term addressing, but it can be resolved. So yeah, definitely long-winded answer again, but definitely worthwhile looking at these things as um, being a bit of a barometer sometimes, like your periods, like your, like your menstrual bleed. If you sort of haven't had a period for a few months um, and you should be, then you've got to be questioning, well, why is that, you know, why is that happening uh, rather than just ignoring those little sort of symptoms that our body lovingly gives us before things become a bit chronic and sinister. Oh, well, the, and the body, that's exactly it. Our body is constantly whispering, giving feedback, balancing, creating opportunities for us to learn. But for many of us, stress, as you said, is such a big component. We're not taking the time to stop, learn and listen. And I think something like this and your poo, your cycles, your sleep patterns, all of these headaches are all amazing symptoms or whispers from the body before it starts yelling. And it, correct me again if I'm wrong, but, you know, bowel cancer is a huge issue, particularly down under. And, you know, a lot of we even get free tests from the government now trying to test that from the age of 50 on. So it must be such a big component of, of wellness or not wellness as we age, mm. how do what I mean? There, there is the Bristol stool chart. Is, is that what it's called? The Bristol yes stool chart, and you can download that, can you, to have a look at what a good poo looks like? Yes, so maybe I'll flick you through a because there's so many out there, and there's some fun ones as well. Uh, but the Bristol stool chart, yes, gives you the the different sort of representations of what a poo may look like, um, and so you can, you know, I I'd encourage people even if you've got children or for an adult just to pop that on the back of their door mm. and the back of their toilet door just to have a good look and say okay well is it sort of sitting at that point where it's a type one stool where it's kind of little hard to pass stools like little nuts and you know like hard lumps because that's more of a constipated picture or is it more of a watery where there's no solid pieces and it's entirely liquid so basically the bristle stool chart is about seven different types of stool representations and you kind of want to be sitting at that kind of um type four so type three top four it feels like a like a solid sausage and it's quite soft and, and smooth and easy to pass mm. that's where you kind of want to be sitting there and, and anything and else yeah can be yeah, there's, there's no accident either is it you said it before that people come in feeling brain fog heavy toxic fatigued you feel shitty you do, when, you're, when you're not shitting properly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, a great analogy. And I always say, whenever someone says to me if they're feeling shitty or they're grumpy or things like that, I always, that's one of my first questions, how's your stools? And it's like, what's the relativity? Yes. I only learned that from being on these ultra marathon runs, looking at the person's poo to work I out how I have to ask though, mm. how did you do that? Like, did you actually have to scoop it into a, 
specimen jar? Like what? Sometimes it depends right. if the if okay. the doctor or the naturopath were concerned, we would take a sample um, and they would just look at it in the bus. I don't know what they did with it when they looked at it, but I had to give it the colour. I would be out there with a torch. We didn't have phones back then. You got to remember it wasn't <laughs> like this. You know this was this was bizarre. But I ended up full at first. I thought, what a gross job. But then I ended up listening to how they talked about we need to up his fibre intake. We need to make sure Mm. he's got more water. We need to know he has to poo. And then we were looking at things. And again, if you, I don't know what it's called, but we had to, we did things like he would have a bit of corn on the cob. And we would then notice how soon that corn on the cob, because that was something you could actually see quite easily in the stool. We had to notice how quickly that passed. Can you tell us, is there a correct time from when we eat something to when we should pass it? Or is that, am I, you know, I don't know, is that something that we should look at? Yeah, look, I think when it, it, and corn on the cob's a good way to do it, or sesame seeds. So you could do like two tablespoons of sesame seeds. uh, And you want to be looking at, you you want to be seeing it within a day. So you want to be seeing it from that sort of 18 to 24 hour period the remnants of the corn coming through or the sesame seeds coming through. If, you, if you're seeing that those sort of remnants come through five days later, then that's a really slow transit time. So basically the transit is how fast it goes from mouth to anus. And so how fast it moves through that digestive, the gastrointestinal tract. And that's why we do that sort of test just to see if it's a fast or a slow transit that's occurring in that person. Yeah. You know, but can you explain to us, talk to us a little bit then about the power or benefits of things like enemas, um, colonics? Do they play a part in our health and well-being? Uh, look, I, I mean, do, I have to be honest. I love both. Just saying. Do you? Yeah. yeah I love <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just curious as to whether yeah. or not that's right. <laughs> I think, I think they, they play a part. I think that the um, I don't tend to recommend both often. I think that, you know, generally those that come and see me may have experimented with enemas or may have experimented with um, colonics uh, often because they're desperate. Um, They've been chronically constipated for a while and it's the only way that they can go. So I tend to look at more addressing why are they constipated in the first place? And we look at, you know, obviously the diet, we look at the movement, we look at all of the other factors, SIBO, whatever it might be, that that may be contributing to them being constipated. I, I don't, they definitely has it, have its place for sure. If someone has been chronically compacted for many, many years, I like the idea of a colonic. I, I'm not against it. I think it definitely has its place to sort of clear out a lot of the old stuff. But I, I te- for example, I had someone that was doing um, enemas every day and she um, that was the only way that she could go. And she was very, 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 very fearful of not doing an enema every day because she was really worried about not being able to go. So we moved her from doing at-home enemas to, you know, doing it twice a week and then doing it. And now she's not doing it at all because she's managed. we've managed to get to a point where we've addressed why she's constipated in the first place that she doesn't need these um, tools. And I guess I'm coming at it from a place of um, people that are chronically constipated that are using it, but that, you know, obviously the coffee enemas and those sorts of things uh, do have other benefits outside of just moving the bowels. Um, But, yeah, I think, and I also do see a lot of, attachment came to things like colonics especially and it becomes a crutch for those that are chronically constipated but again you'd be using it for something different so it's just you know what I mean like Mm. I I think that's the demographic that I'm seeing walk into clinics so I kind of tend to discourage and use it when we need if there's been long-term chronic constipation and then we address um, the driver first uh, rather than kind of looking at these things as a regular practice but they certainly do have a place and they certainly have other benefits than than um just moving someone's bowels really and how do you feel after enemas and and do you do coffee enemas how frequently do you do it I look I first got introduced to colonics many years ago um I I can't tell you the last time I had oh actually I can the last time I had a colonic was when I was in at Gwingana three years ago so I don't have them often but I was at Gwingana I'd been shouted to stay there for a week and I just did all the treatments that were there of course. Live, live blood analysis 
saw the naturopath, iridologist. I just loved it. Sound healing, all of these different things. Absolutely, you know, the biggest lush out there. And of course, included a colonic. And I just really loved talking to the woman that was doing it, watching what was coming out. I just found it fascinating. Mm. Um, coffee enemas, I love, particularly if I'm doing a cleanse. Um, don't do them all the time. I do love the the technique and why and the stimulation, I guess, of the liver, if I'm correct at that. But, yes. I, you know, I do, I really enjoy it if I'm doing a, a specific detox. But again, not, I'm very blessed. I feel very lucky. My body clock, the minute it wakes in the morning, I have my big glass of water with lemon or um, grapefruit juice. And then it, within minutes, I'm ready to go. So I feel very blessed that I have never had a problem touch wood with that, except when I've been dehydrated, to be honest, if I haven't been drinking enough, if I've been doing long distance running and all those things, stress. And I have known clients and friends and people who, when they're staying at someone else's house, they seem to clench neglect. and neglect, yes. yes, and don't want to. Like, whereas I think it's such a great conversation, and I, I believe a good poo is part of self love. To be honest, because oh, totally, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's why I was so excited to get you on because I was like, how do we make this a part of self love? And I just think when your plumbing is working, I remember hearing um, Cindy O'Meara talk about you know, basically we're a donut. We are a hole from our mouth to our anus. <laughs> yes. And when I looked at that, I was like, wow, we really are. Because it's outside don- of our body. When yes. you think about, yes, we don't think, of, we think of it, well, it's internal. It must be inside our body, but it's actually, and it's from the mouth to the anus, it's it's outside of our body, that sort of internal, you know. <laughs> it's the kind it's of rabbit hole-ish when you think about it, it is. like that. <laughs> Um, is there anything then from a place of love that you believe, because as a naturopath, you said you talk about the holistic, the whole picture. Is that something that you're looking at? Is that a cue for self-love? Like, I'm, I'm, I just think there's this incredible relationship with the way we poo and the way we love ourselves. And I know that sounds bizarre, <laughs> but I really would love to think that I'm not going crazy thinking this. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Are you asking what my, uh, like, is that sort of a part of self-love? I definitely think it is. I think, you know, worthy, making, feeling as though you're worthy of investing the time to explore why these things may not be functioning well, enjoying a good satisfying poo. I don't know about you, but like there's, I used to talk about this thing called pooforia where you, um, <laughs> where you do a good poo and you feel amazing and, you know, you're like, right, okay, I've just evacuated well. And um, some say that it does sort of stimulate that vagus nerve as well. Um, and, and so I think that, yes, ensuring that you overall, if you're looking after your health and you, you consider that an investment in yourself, because sometimes it does take time, it's not a quick fix, that for me is self-love, that you're investing in yourself in that way and you're putting in these practices to ensure optimal health and, and maintain your health so you don't need to be Band-Aid treating ailments or those ailments just don't come up as frequently or they just don't come up at, at, as all, at all. But I think for me also um, a big aspect of self-love would be just to ensure, and I'm coming across this now, as sometimes I feel like my life can be very skewed in the direction of the doing and the busyness and the, and I don't wear it as a badge of honour. In fact, I think, oh, okay, this is really out of balance. Am I bringing joy into my day? Even though I love what I do and I love my studies, am I bringing in more connection? Am I, you know, getting out into nature as I would like to, you know, is my life on a daily basis bringing in joy at some level and pleasure at some level that for me is self-love just really checking in with yourself and saying you know like how do I feel in my body how do I feel mentally and you know is there joy in my life am I welcoming in pleasure I think is um is where I'm at with self-love especially as I reflect on it Mm. yeah I love it I love it you are married to the gorgeous guy, Lawrence. I am. I adore. <laughs> um, and I would just love to ask you, well, you know, what's that like and how have you become, both of you, uh, passionate about health and wellness and, and the way in which you serve your followers? I mean, I personally think it's amazing what you both do. You've got gorgeous little Ava. But, yeah, how is it living with the gorgeous guy, Lawrence, and what's that like? I think we definitely challenge each other. I think um, we met each other at the right time. I mean, I'm 40, 43 now and Guy's 46. We met each other, I think, in our 
I was in my mid thirties, um, and we were ready. We'd done so much work on ourselves, and I think that that never ends. We're constantly evolving. I think it works because we encourage each other. I, I don't think I would have started the podcast if it wasn't for Guy believing in me and suggesting, "Oh, you should probably do a do a podcast," you know. And I was like, "Nah, nah, that's just too much work. Why would I want to create that for myself?" And it's been. He often does that. He'll just drop these little seeds because he can see I'm passionate about something and then I'll be quick to say no, shut it down, and then I will mull over it and then I'll just dip my toe in the, and he'll help me out with the back end stuff and then I'll feel like, well, I can do this. This feels good and it's been the best thing for me to, and that's just one example, it's been the best thing for me to do the podcast because I'm connecting with colleagues again. I'm, I'm able to direct my patients to these conversations that I'm having that, I'm not just saying to them, they're hearing it from someone else. So it's been such a, a beautiful thing that I've brought into my life. And so I think we encourage each other to think um, beyond our limitations. And I think that that, uh, and, and we're not afraid to have those confronting, challenging conversations. Like there's many times that I've actually had to pull guy up on things and say, you know what, what would you say to someone at your retreat, for example, if he gets stuck in a space in his head that just feels angry or stagnant or fearful? It's like, right, okay, is this really what you would be wanting someone that's come to your retreat to do? Like what would you do in this scenario? And so I think that, you know, um, we're, we're good for each other in that sense. I think we love what we do. I think we're, we feel very blessed that we can work in the way that we do, that we can both work from home and we can both um, look after Ava whilst that's a challenge. I don't think three, four hours a day is enough <laughs> to be doing the babysitting juggle, but we've managed to make it work for now. Um, yeah, I just think we've really created a really nice life for ourselves. And whilst there's things that we do want to change, um, especially with the current climate, covid all the stuff that's going down at the moment, there's changes that we want to make, which is a bit unnerving. But at this point in time, I think that, you know, we have created a nice life for ourselves and we continue to, to look at how can we bring more joy into our lives and question when, that, when we're feeling a little bit fearful or stagnant or flat, you know, and what needs to change. So what's like living with him? I love it. It's great. It's a challenge but it's, it's for both of us, you know, just as new parents. But it's good. I love it. You're a beautiful peer. Look, I so appreciate your time. I know he's looking after little Ava while we do this chat. <laughs> um, for those listeners interested, I had a guy on the show, show number 19, if you want to go back and listen to that. It was a beautiful conversation. Um, and also I love the work that he and Matt um, and Petra, obviously, with their workshops, which Cindy and I were lucky enough to attend. But I just think, you know, the more we can all be on the same platform of providing a space of love, self-love, care, honouring one another, servicing each other with, with that love and care. But also, you know, like you just said, challenging one another too, to think greater, bigger, more, um, and also to, to be very conscious of, us all being connected to, at some level. Is there a final message you would have for the beautiful self-love podcast listener? And as a part of that, would you also let us know if there's a way that we can be connected with you? Yes, absolutely. So I guess my final message would be something that I'm really deeply reflecting on at the moment. And that's really asking yourself those questions on the regular, on a weekly basis Am I bringing joy into my life, joy and pleasure into my life? And if not, what needs to change in order to, order to do that? Um, I think that's really important. And also just recognising that supporting yourself health-wise is an investment in your mental health and in your emotional health. So really taking the time to put in those practices to really um, support your health overall and, and considering that as a long-term investment. Um, where they can find me, lindagriprich.com is my website and Love and Guts is the podcast. So they're, they're probably the best platforms to reach me on. Yeah, beautiful. And, and Instagram, are you on there as well? Oh, yes, definitely Instagram. It feels like it's a bit of an Ava show at the moment. but 
So it should be. She's so damn cute, man. She's yeah. adorable. Oh, my gosh. We didn't even yeah. talk what it's like to be a mum and how oh you're God. doing and all of that. But I'm assuming. You can see with the struggles of my answers that the sleep has been quite impacted. Last so I do apologise for that. I had a friend who's got a new baby just say, I said to her, how are you going? She goes, I can't get over how tired I am. And I, and yeah. I, just, I went back and I text, now you can understand why some species eat their young. <laughs> Oh dear. Oh, sorry. Probably not the right thing to say, but I will put all those links into the show notes. Very grateful. I know you're an amazing writer. You also teach very well with your podcasts and I absolutely love your specialization with digestive health. And it's something that I absolutely believe is one of the greatest parts of self-love is knowing that we are as fit and healthy and well as we possibly can be. And that certainly starts with a massive interest in our poo. But just to finish, I would love to ask you, do you have a favorite quote at the moment that our beautiful listener would enjoy? Absolutely. I've got one that I've got on my website, actually, because it really resonated with me back then and it still does. By Wayne Dyer, and it is, you are not stuck where you are unless you decide to be, because I really feel like half the time it is a choice. So we don't need to be stuck. That's beautiful. <laughs> Literally, right? That's That could be said. We don't need to be constipated. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> unless we decide that's what we want. That's right. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being a part of the self-love podcast and keep being amazing. Keep sharing all your knowledge and, and all the best with your studies. I think it's profound to be doing that while you're a mum of a, of, a, of a young baby. Well done, beautiful. And thank you. Thanks, Kim. I feel very honoured to have you come on. Oh, come on. To have you ask me to come on your podcast and guys, you have been, Kim has actually been on my podcast too. So make sure you check that out. Episode 223, I think it was. Yeah, you're beautiful. Love you dearly. And give my hugs to that beautiful husband and baby of yours. I shall. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.